Welcome to Writing It, a podcast by Ed Adams. The Square, episode 9, a novel by Ed Adams. Trip to London. Chuck checked the flights to get to Cannes. He'd have to fly from New York to London or Paris and then take a flight to Nice. It was about 30 minutes by taxi from Nice to Cannes. He worked out he could be there by Wednesday afternoon. Chuck remembered that he'd texted Jake and now decided to call Jake in London. Jake, it's Chuck. I'm on my way to Cannes, France via Nice. I'd like to meet you in London on the way. Heathrow, Terminal 5, Airside. Jake, can you arrange to get a ticket also on the same flight, BA348? 1710 London time tomorrow, arrives Cannes at 2010 French time. Whoa, Chuck, sure, are you all right? Where can we meet? Doing fine, but life is somewhat hectic. How about the pub in the terminal? You know, the nice one, airside. Huxley's, that's the less crowded one. Great, I'll see you there tomorrow. I'm in New York right now, so I'll be flying in during the day on BA and then I'll make my way to the bar. Okay, I'll see you there, complete with a ticket. Huxley's. Chuck had flown back to London. He was in Heathrow Terminal 5, looking for the bar where he would meet Jake. Huxley's was busy. It was a replica pub built in the 21st century fabric of the air terminal. It attempted to recreate a version of a gentrified London boozer. Jake called Chuck from across the bar. Jake noticed that Chuck was wearing one of his slightly green-looking suits. Now was not the time to say anything. It's been a long time, greeted Jake, and I assume there's something unusual involved. Yes, said Chuck. What are you having, asked Jake, as he reached the bar and caught the eye of the bartender. She smiled at him with a twinkle in her eye. Uh, A water, please, said Chuck. Still or sparkling, asked the bartender. Still, responded Chuck. Jake looked across to Chuck. I need some help, said Chuck, from people that are unknown. I seem to have got myself into a spot of trouble. There's been an incident, and I'm trying to put things right. Okay, said Jake. I assume it's dangerous too, given that you're involved. Yes, replied Chuck. Some people have already been killed, but I don't want you to do anything dangerous, although your help might be a great game-changer in the current situation. Chuck looked at Jake. Look, I'm going to trust you with this. I think you know me well enough to know I'm not making this up, although it may sound a little far-fetched. We'd better get a table then, smiled Jake, and you some pork scratchings. Chuck began his story. A few days ago, I was sent to Egypt by the US Army. I know, I'm not officially anything to do with them now. I was contacted by the US Army's 1st Special Forces Operational Detachment Delta. That's S-F-O-D-D. It's a special unit of the US government tasked with counter-terrorist operations outside the United States. It sounds rather elite, ventured Jake. Elite, deniable and deadly, answered Chuck, smiling. No clichés here, eh? I'm going to trust you with this information. I wouldn't usually tell anyone about this stuff, but I'm going to need your help with something where I just can't go to the normal sources. Why is that? asked Jake. Leaks, responded Chuck. A major leak that makes me think that some very senior people are involved in something that can create a global catastrophe. I hardly think that Beezy, Claire and I can somehow fix this then, smiled Jake. You are right, Jake. The point of getting you involved is to help me find some information that I can then lead to unlocking what we need to do. My mission in Egypt was supposed to be fairly simple. The country has an inherent instability and I was to use the unrest to cover up my actual mission, 
which was to blow up a helicopter. Whoa, said Jake, this is already getting dark. Literally, I'd been tasked with this as a black op against terrorists. I was told that the truck carried something valuable to the US, but would be under attack from terrorists or mercenaries. They gave me coordinates to hit the helicopter before it could take out the truck. I'd been told that there were two parallel missions to take out two different trucks on different routes. I assumed they were carrying missiles, but I was wrong. They said they could give me the exact coordinates of the helicopter strike. I assumed they obtained the intel from some kind of counterintelligence probe. I was to operate alone as a civilian, except I'd be surprisingly well-armed civilian. I was to have a selection of surface-to-air missiles at my disposal. I was given the intercept coordinates and told the truck would look like a petrol tanker. I was to use the weaponry at my disposal, but explicitly it was non-American. I had to spend some time learning the controls on the Russian SAM launcher and on a Korean surface missile. I got this job on a non-refusal basis. Uncle Sam has a few other facts about me that made this difficult to refuse. As an ex-Delta Force person, I had the right credentials. Of course, if you're in the regular US Army, you think that Delta Force has all the latest weaponry and equipment. The reality is that often, when something or someone like me is called into action, the last thing required would be a piece of sophisticated American technology to gloss over the operation. It's too much of a fingerprint when we need stealth. That's why I had to familiarise myself with foreign ordnance for this mission. I arrived in the locale for the operation in a four-wheel drive. It was a Nissan patrol, the kind that everyone from the suburbs through to local gangsters and drug smugglers use. The vehicle I used looked slightly beaten up and in town would not be noticed. In the desert, it was a typical vehicle too and had plenty of space for the weaponry it currently carried. I never did find out who the other shooter was supposed to be or even where the second convoy was heading. It's fairly standard in a black op to know as little as possible. But you're telling me this now, interrupted Jake. Yes, that mission is dead, but it is useful to have the context for what is about to happen next. Manners took another sip of his water. I guess that the truck contained ordnance in transit. My guess was a very long-range missile. The popular theory is that any one of the Iraqis, Iranians, Libyans and Afghanistanis would be seeking mischief with this sort of technology. It could be against a variety of nations, including the Americans and all of Europe. How would the surveillance know about this, asked Jake. If a major nation states can't find weapons of mass destruction, then finding a single missile seems to be somewhat more far-fetched. Manners nodded. That's what I thought initially. A needle in a haystack. Unless there had been a tip-off. That's where this gets suspicious. If it really was a dangerous weapon, then in effect the Americans were helping it get to its destination. Except it didn't, because it was destroyed by the helicopter before I took the helicopter down. It turned out that whoever was shipping the consignment had tried to initialise it unsuccessfully. It had sent out a beacon pulse to say it was being tampered with, like a silent alarm message which had found its way onto the internet and then been picked up in Langley. I'd suspected that this was no ordinary missile. Pentagon showed a direct interest in this, which made me think it was a bus merv, which basically means a long-range nuclear capability. Bus doesn't sound very fast, queried Jake. These missiles are very fast, ten times the speed of the fastest plane. They're launched into space, and then they are triggered. The bus means that one missile can carry multiple independent re-entry vehicles. That's warheads in plain English. That's why they are well scrutinised and tracked down, then, commented Jake. Yes, the Pentagon can keep up with all the smaller stuff nowadays. The 
Libya alone is about 20,000 of surface-to-air missiles. They found an unguarded complex with 100,000 anti-tank mines as well. So it's really the big stuff that gets their attention. My job was to shoot something at the missile to bring it to a halt. It could then be noisily recovered and put out of harm's way. Uh, wouldn't your own missile cause it to explode or something? Asked Jake. Not a chance, asked, answered Jake. Without the code sequences and arming commands, the whole missile is effectively made neutral. Don't get me wrong, there's very nasty stuff inside, but the weapon is considered safe until it's been primed. They'll have to think of these things when they design the weapons, or else it could all get very messy, explained Chuck. I was sitting in the Nissan in the desert, pretty well concealed. I had some long-range digital binoculars and was scanning the area for other signs of people. All I could see was a single small car, but it was so far away that even with image enhancement I couldn't work out what it was doing. The next thing I heard was a high-pitched engine sound from the diesel truck. The sound had reminded me of an American Army M923 transporter, but this was def definitely a civilian rig. Truck continued. I could also hear a low-frequency sound which was getting closer. It was a helicopter. I looked up and could see the large attack helicopter, an Apache, fully loaded. The chopper was following the truck, and I noticed the markings on the chopper had been painted out. I wondered initially if the helicopter was some sort of defence for the truck, but realised that it locked on to make an assault on the truck. The Apache fired one missile and the truck was obliterated. My orders were to take out anything associated with the truck, and this now included the helicopter. I used a SAM to bring it down. I'd already got a laser and range lock from the digital binoculars. Two seconds and both the truck and the chopper were gone. The explosion from the truck had been huge, but no nuclear. I was actually quite deaf at this point. In the far distance, I could see the other vehicle, which was now moving away, but it was out of any practical range for me to do more. So, did you leg it at this point, asked Jake? Chuck continued. Strictly, I could have left at this point. I was supposed to confirm that I'd taken out the truck, but it was plainly obvious, even from three clicks away. But I wanted to take a look, because the helicopter wasn't playing by any normal rules. I had to look around the sky first, in case there was a backup plane, but if there had been, it would have gone through very soon after the explosions. There was nothing, so I decided to edge the Nissan along the road towards the craters. I needed to move fast, because even in, on this desert road there was traffic every 15 or 20 minutes. As I approached the helicopter, I could see the extent of the damage. The SAM had destroyed the whole left side of the helicopter, as well as the entire cockpit area. The remains of the rear part were clear, and even its two remaining missiles were still attached, but unexploded. The helicopter had been an AH-64 Apache, and this one was painted all over black and did not have normal markings, except what looked like a painted-over squadron marking on the tail fin. I examined the remains of the intact side, and then saw a painted-over star. At first I was thinking American, but the star was not in the right rotation. It looked Israeli. I scraped the paint. Under the black, the star was blue. I could see the surrounding circle, which had also been painted out. I knew it would be white. It was. This was an Israeli helicopter operating in Egypt. This broke all kinds of conventions and could only be assumed to be a covert operation. This is one twisted operation, said Jake. No wonder you need someone with no background. I couldn't work out why an Israeli helicopter would be so on fundamentally the same mission that I'd been set. I also couldn't work out why they would take such an extreme risk to attack an, in a stealth helicopter across an international border. I know I was doing this as Delta Force Geek, but the only Israeli equivalent, Sayer Matkal, would be likely to do this. 
difference was that the Americans had covered their tracks by using deniable resource, foreign weapons and local transport. The Israelis had just flown a repainted helicopter onto the area. They must have expected it to get away with their plan and be able to escape backly to an international zone. I decided to fire another missile into the helicopter, mainly to destroy the remains of identification. I also thought it useful to mix in another type of armament to really mess things up. So I used the Korean surface missile. It was just a pop compared with the original explosions, but the tail section with the identity was pretty much obliterated. I also needed to check the minor remains of the truck, but it was fairly sure that they would provide very little information based upon the scale of destruction when the helicopter's own missile had been fired into the tanker. It took me another few minutes to get from the helicopter crash to the tanker's crater. There wasn't much to see. It had been a huge explosion, but still sub-nuclear. I looked around the site for evidence of what had caused it, but there was nothing. I don't see how it could have been on board, but there was some kind of explosive being carried. Otherwise, it doesn't add up. The missile from the Apache couldn't create as much devastation as it did. So my theory is that the truck included something to help things along. You're saying it was staged? asked Jake. Staged isn't the word I would use, but it looks to me as if the intended result was to give the impression that something very big and powerful had been blown up. So you think they knew someone was onto them? I don't think the driver of the truck would have known, but someone must have leaked the information, and in more than one direction too. The destruction was not consistent with a large missile being blown up. It makes me think the truck was carrying something else. So, they wanted everyone to think that the truck had been blown up? Yes, and the fact that they'd gone to the Americans and the Israelis and put them onto it suggests that they didn't want to take any chances. So then what? asked Jake. I had to get out of the area. Out of the way. It ran parallel to another busier road. That was about ten miles to the south. The amount of noise and smoke would attract attention and only gave a few minutes before others would come for a look. And then the police and the military. As it happens, for me, it was mission accomplished. The truck was gone. It's just that there was a spare helicopter downed as well. My Nissan was completely unscathed in all of this, so I headed along the roadway from Cairo and then turned down another small road back towards the main highway and across to the other highway. <clears throat> Wouldn't someone want additional support in the area, asked Jake. Too risky, answered Chuck. If you think about it, the truck was supposed to be travelling undercover. No one was supposed to know about it. The Americans could hardly appear in the area unless everyone pointed a finger towards them and as for the Israelis, forget it. One disguised helicopter was the absolute limit. Yes, said Jake, nodding. Showing up just after a massive missile fight wouldn't be the brightest move. And as it was, I didn't see anyone approaching the crash by road, so I headed back to the main route. But I guess they would have had to come from the Cairo direction. Any normal civilian would probably have wanted to give it a wide berth, either because it was insurgents of some kind, or simply because if they were in a hurry and didn't want to get stuck in a traffic hold-up. Jake nodded. So what do you want me or us to do? He asked again. Diversion. It's something you're very good at, Chuck replied. A diversion. Well, I do something else. I'm trying to recover something for our governments. To be honest, I'm trying to recover something despite our governments. Jake smiled. A diversion would be fun. What kind of diversion, he asked, and why is it despite the government? It's best you don't know too much about what I will be doing, but whilst I'm doing it, it would be great if you could help the people we're working with look the other way. 
I'll level with you. My colleague James has had his partner kidnapped. They're after some codes and want to arrange a trade. The captors could play nice or it could act up rough. The intention is to show them that I have backup with me. We need to go to a bar in Cannes, hand over the codes and walk out with James's partner, Leah. You'll be my driver. We'll have someone from the embassy to add colour and texture inside the handover. How will they know that the codes are genuine? I guess they will have a boffin along, answered Chuck. Someone who can test the codes somehow. Will anyone get hurt during this, asked Jake. No, they shouldn't. If we do this right, then no one should even know that what has happened until it is too late to do anything at all. Chuck, why won't you use the normal security services for this, asked Jake. It's delicate, said Chuck. This is one situation where I need to ensure there are no leaks of information, frankly, that no one else knows what I'm doing. I know I can trust you for this. Chuck looked Jake in the eye. But I do need to know that you'll be prepared to do this. Chuck, you've assured us that there won't be any danger. Of course we will help you. Jake nodded. It wasn't so different from the last time he'd been with Chuck. Nothing was really what it seemed, and this was a typical extension. Don't you ever get confused with all of these parallel realities, asked Jake. Chuck smiled. We both know how it is, he replied. If it was too simple, then everyone would do it. I've set up a fake conference number to control the operation, like a dialing conference call. We're going to leak the number to the people at the meeting. We will need some voices on the line to sound like it is a major operation. They need to think that you've got the phone for that purpose and are under orders. Okay, that's where Bigsy and Claire come in, making air chatter. Precisely, said Chuck. To bulk out the operation with voices on the line, we want them to think that they better play nice with us. Okay, I'd better get on to Bigsy. I'll get him to come up with some sound effects. Leah's handover had been arranged. James made his way to the Carlton Beach Club along the Crozette. He could see Chuck Manners and someone else already there, sitting at the bar. Hi, James, called Chuck. This is Jake. He'll be joining us for the occasion. Jake nodded. The sleek setting of the Jet Set exclusive club seemed an incongruous place to meet for the handover. And over there is Oliver from the British Consulate. He gestured to another table where Oliver sat, flamboyantly listening to radio communication on an earpiece. James also noticed a small group of the people he had met in New York and that had sent him to the Café Londine a day or so ago in Cannes. Oliver's earpiece was quite loud and he could hear sound leakage from it as it changed modes. James adjusted his own earpiece, which had the running commentary from further voices, which sounded as if it was a full stakeout in progress. At that moment, he noticed a sleek powerboat curving its way across the bay. He realised it was planning to dock on the jetty, and he realised that this is where Leah was held. Ever so slowly, he moved forward towards the end of the jetty, holding a machined briefcase in his right hand. He knew it contained the codes which Chuck had painstakingly retrieved with the assistance of Robert Alton. The difference was the case was now a regular one, without a special electronic lock incorporated. Someone stepped from the launch... It was a bespectacled man in grey t-shirt and shorts. He was carrying a small laptop and gestured to James to hand over the case. Chuck stood at that moment and James could hear the sound of the earpiece get louder. OK, here's the case. Now hand over Leah, he said. I need to validate the codes first, said the man. He flipped open the case and took a sheet of paper from it. He opened the laptop and started to type in something. James could not see what he was doing. I'm using the validation suite to check the codes are correct, said the man. 
There was a pause as he continued typing. Yes, he said eventually, these codes all passed the validation tests. He signalled back to the launch and Leah appeared on deck, held by two men in suits. You can release her now, said James. Chuck looked across to the man with the laptop. That way we can let your scientist friend go, said Chuck, grasping the arm of the man with the laptop. Okay, okay, said one of the men holding Leah. We're releasing her now. The boat rocked against the jetty as Leah walked towards the exit. Chuck moved his arm into his jacket. The radio in chat chatter in James's ear continued. Leah was now close to the bar in the beach club and James put his arm around her, moving her towards the exit. Jake was sitting in a car on the croisette as two of them approached. Chuck moved towards the boat with the man with the laptop. He can go now, said Chuck. This should be an end of it. The man on the powerboat nodded. Yes, your team can go now. Chuck walked back towards the exit from the beach club. Oliver stood and took a couple of photographs. The radio chatter continued. Chuck could hear Jake revving the engine of the rental car as he made his way along the croisette. Mission accomplished, he said to Oliver. He, he gestured to a second car parked on the croisette opposite the beach club. That's ours, he said. We're off to the heliport and then flying to Marseille. Hit it, Oliver. Oliver looked over to the black Mercedes E-Class and jumped into the driver's seat. You've done well, said Chuck. The least we could do is give you a fast route back to Marseille. At the heliport, they regrouped. Chuck could see that James and Leah were delighted. Chuck announced, we are going to head for Marseille. It's harder to follow us there and I've arranged in the UK for Leah and James to be put up somewhere in a secure location until the dust from all of this subsides. Good, said Jake. Now we have everyone back together. Yes, said Chuck. But the bad guys have the priming codes for the toxins. Chuck could see Oliver talking rapidly to someone on the earpiece. Oliver soon announced, That was Robert Alton. He confirms if we bring James and Leah in, he will provide them with a secure cover. Mm -hmm.